We're in a series called Rebuild and Rejoice, uh, based in the book of Nehemiah. So if you could grab your Bible, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 3. And what we're doing in this series is we're seeing a whole load of links between the rebuilding of Jerusalem two and a half thousand years ago under Nehemiah's leadership. The walls are broken down and they need to be repaired so the city can be safe. A whole load of links between that rebuilding and the rebuilding and repair and restoration of the church, this church and the church in the world, after COVID. And we actually traced out a number of those uh, connections a couple of weeks back in the opening week of the series to try and show you why we're doing that and why we think there are connections between the two, theologically and even historically. And that's what we did first week. And then last week, Steve gave a Vision Sunday message, which if you regularly come to this church and you haven't heard it, I'd really encourage you to listen to because it's a really important message for us as a community here in London. But really important message, just sketching out Nehemiah chapter 2, in which Nehemiah, having prayed in chapter 1, then begins to inspect the walls, see what needs to be done, and summon the people to rise up and build in chapter 2. And then in this week, chapter 3, we turn to see the people actually doing it. We've had a chapter of them, if you like, praying for the project and then preparing for the project. But in this week, they actually do it. They build it. And that means that in some ways, this chapter serves almost like a high point of the story of the book. Now, it doesn't read that way. I'm going to prepare you for that, right? This chapter will read, it would sound very odd to you, I expect, to all of us. It's not a chapter that we would normally read if it wasn't in the Bible. But what we have here is, if you like, the, the high point of the story in a way, because this is the chapter where the walls actually get built. Now, the whole book is really about the restoration of Israel's walls and their celebration. And this is the chapter where it happens. Where dozens and dozens of people you've never heard of build a little section of the wall at a time. It doesn't make for a gripping narrative, but this is where the, the business of it all happens. And from a narrative point of view, it doesn't read like that at all because it's just a long list of names of people you've not heard of doing small, ordinary, mundane, humdrum things that combine together, make a huge difference, but on their own look really kind of dull. And, that's, and we're going to try and draw a lesson from that, which I think is of vital importance in our culture. But of course, that's how great things in the world actually get achieved is lots and lots of people doing little things that most of us never hear of. That's how almost all great things happen. But our culture doesn't tend to tell stories that way. In our culture, we don't really want walls to be built that way or achievements to happen that way. We tend to want a great hero to rise up and do something dramatic and then the music swells and it all builds and then this glorious hero fades and looks back and rides into the sunset and everybody applauds. And we want to be that person. But actually, that's not, by and large, how great things happen. Great inventions don't normally work with just one genius. They're the product of loads of people. Great wars or great victories or great achievements or great monuments or great anythings really are normally achieved by loads and loads of people. That's how walls get built. That's how cities get restored. It's how churches get rebuilt and led into rejoicing. Thousands and thousands of people, one brick, one step, one humdrum, ordinary, mundane, boring, anonymous task at a time. And you do this tiny little bit here and someone else does that and so And together they make a huge difference. And most of us don't want the world to be like that. We, we don't like the idea that most important things are very unglamorous. We, we want mo- movie stories and you know, heroes and drama and excitement. Not lots and lots of unheard of people 
doing very unglamorous things. In fact, what we tend to do, if we're not thinking about it, is we dismiss the unknown people doing unglamorous things. So, oh, it's a drop in the ocean. You know, that's, that's what that phrase is, isn't it? It's like, it's a drop in the ocean. Just so I kind of want to say, well, yes, it is, a, it is a drop in the ocean. And the ocean is nothing but drops. That's all an ocean is. It's just lots and lots of drops. You take the drops away, you don't have an ocean. The Taj Mahal is nothing but stones. Each one of those individual stones is absolutely critical to the integrity of the whole. Otherwise, there would be no Taj Mahal, no ocean, no walls of Jerusalem, no church. And as we read this chapter, we're going to encounter dozens and dozens of people you've never heard of. And to be honest, quite frankly, you will not remember, even 20 minutes after I finish speaking, working in 40 different sections on the wall. And we're going to see how the work of rebuilding in the church today, as well as in Jerusalem two and a half thousand years ago, is almost entirely a matter of ordinary, communal, unknown people doing unknown things. And that's wonderful news for you and me, because we too, my friends, are very ordinary, unknown, mostly anonymous, will largely be forgotten people doing pretty ordinary things. And that's how the work of God gets achieved on the earth. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachor, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They lays its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakos, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Barna, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles wouldn't stoop to serve their lord. Joida, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodea, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Meronothite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor and the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Chachiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabniah, repaired. Malchiah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section, and the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Chalohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, bolts, and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchiah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hacharem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. We are halfway there. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth-zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rechon, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. 
After him, Baruch, the son of Zabbai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakos, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib, which makes me think he's kind of a little bit lazier than the others. Like, I repaired a little bit from this door to that door. Didn't sound so impressive. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Binui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired each one opposite his own house. Last paragraph. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechai, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. This is the word of God. Western culture is highly individualistic, right? We are, as a culture, obsessed by individual fulfillment and self-actualization. That's how our culture is wired. There's all kinds of interesting reasons why that's true. But in our sort of society, the most important unit in society is not the family, or the, for most people, maybe it should be, but for most people in our culture, the most important unit isn't the family or the clan or the tribe or the nation or the religious community. It's the self for most people in Britain. Right? That's not a biblical perspective, but that is the way that most of our, many of us probably function by default and the way that most people in our workplaces, streets and so on work. That's how we think. And that way of thinking has percolated through and been reinforced by our economics. That's what consumer capitalism basically is. You buy stuff for you that you want for you, and, as a, and then when it's done, you throw it away. That, that kind of culture is baked into our economic system, is baked into our politics, individual voting democracy. Every individual gets a say. You know, that's how we think. It's baked into our jobs. It's baked into our sexual lives and our relationships. If this will help you actualize yourself or fulfill yourself, then you should do it. But actually, very much a secondary consideration is what sort of family or even dare I say, what sort of institution does this help to build across multiple generations? Well, it doesn't really matter. It's what works for you. It affects our practice of family as a whole, so that you might genuinely have five people in the same home, all sitting there in different rooms of the house, all on an electronic device, eating at the same time, but without actually eating a meal together. And for most of human history, that would have seemed totally bizarre, but in, many of our culture, in many, much of our culture, that's quite normal. And actually, that kind of... Rampant individualism has even shaped our Christian faith, whether we are aware of it or not. We naturally see the fundamental relationship in our Christian lives being the one between God and me, rather than between God and us, of which I am a small part. The church, for many of us, can seem like simply a context for enhancing individual faith. And therefore, I am part of the church to the extent that it helps me realise my spiritual goals. Again, I'm not commending that. I'm just saying I think that's a thing in our culture. 
And the stories we tell in our culture are about great individuals who do remarkable things, or maybe great individuals who experience moving failures that helps them discover something about themselves. But the point is we tell the story about titanic individuals of great achievement, interest, or whatever, or tragedy. But what we don't do is genealogies, or family trees, or lists, like the chapter we've just read. So when we read a chapter like this, it seems very, very odd and alien to us. It would be one of the strangest chapters of the Bible, and many of us, as we were reading through it just now, would be thinking, man, what on earth is he doing this for? This is just, why is this in the Bible? And who led it in the preaching series, and so on? If I had written this chapter... I would not have done it as a list of names like that. I would have written about a man with a plan. And then Nehemiah rose up and he delegated all these responsibilities. He's a great decision maker, Nehemiah, and he did this and you do that and you did not Everybody got together. And it kind of be like Bob the Builder. Working together, we get the job done. And Lofty goes, yeah, oh, I think so. That's how it would have worked if I'd written this story. But it wouldn't be a list of loads and loads of random people whose names I've already forgotten and I'm preaching on it. Nehemiah, in this chapter, isn't even mentioned. There is a Nehemiah, but it's not the Nehemiah who's the subject of the book. It's another guy with the same name. The the Nehemiah, who's the hero of the whole book, does not feature in this chapter. And that is so alien to the way we tend to tell stories. Instead, what we get in this chapter is a bracing challenge to our individualistic worldview, the way we see the world. We get dozens of random people doing random things in random places. Hattush, the son of Hashabniah, Shalom, the son of Halachesh, and his daughters, whoever they are. All of them totally forgettable. All of them totally essential if what you're trying to do is build a wall. We get important and influential people in their culture who end up doing extremely unimportant or apparently unimportant, menial, unprestigious things. So, for instance, verse 1, then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests. Now, in a culture like this, they are the most important people anywhere. They're the priests who represent man to God and God to man. And they, dum-dum-dum, built the sheep gate. That's all they did. They just built a little section of the wall by the gate. There's a lot of people who get very grim jobs that aren't even named. So I would suspect that the sons of Hassanah, verse 3, who built the fish gate... I'm guessing a fish gate in a Middle Eastern summer smells pretty bad. But they're not even mentioned. Who are Hassan our sons? I don't know. We didn't really name those guys. They're just so menial that we didn't even record their names. You have a whole load of highly skilled artisans in this chapter who lay their specialisms aside in order to do whatever is needed. They're hopelessly overqualified, you might say. Verse 8, next to them, Uziel, son of Hahaya, goldsmiths repaired. It's like, my job is to work with and fashion gold, and I'm just repairing a little bit of mortar. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. He's like, I can make perfume, and here I am just, you know, I don't know, filing something down or adding a brick to another brick or digging a bit of foundation. It just feels like a waste of all their skill. They've got these amazingly great skills, but actually they're laying them all down just to get the job done because it needs doing. My favourite, Malchiah, a local ruler and actually a member of a clan that's quite famous in Israel for being very obedient. We read about that in Jeremiah. But Malchiah gets the most unpleasant job of them all. Verse 14, Malchiah, the son of Rehab, ruler of the district of Beth Hacharem, repaired the dung gate. And yes, that is what you think it is. Now, individualists 
Don't do things like that. Individualistic people who are obsessed by self-actualization and the fulfillment of my own individual dreams and purposes don't tend to do things like this. Rulers only repair dungates when fixing the city matters more than sitting pretty. When saying, this job needs doing and I've got to do it right now matters more than going, oh, I'm going to be entitled to my ruler status. Individualists don't tend to do things like this. They might serve a little bit, but they'd almost certainly find a way of taking a photo of themselves and putting it online so people knew what they'd done. People don't behave like this unless they have been caught up in a vision where the corporate calling matters more than the personal preference and the individual destiny. That's the only thing that would motivate someone to behave like this. A ruler of a district, a famously obedient clan to say, do you know what, I'm just, the Dungate needs fixing. And if this city doesn't get repaired, we're all in much bigger trouble than my, my rulership is worth. So I'm going to lay down whatever I status I might have around here. In an honour-shame culture, that's a big deal. And I'm going to repair the Dungate. That's all I'm going to do. Many of you know, and if you're regular at the church, you probably know that my two oldest children have special needs. And my daughter in particular is really quite disabled. And so she's very rarely able to come. I know some of you have, have met her and been so kind to her, but, but she's not very often able to come. It's a, it's, a, it's a challenge. And the period when they were, as a pair of children, they were regressing, which means they were going backwards in skills, you know, reached a certain age, and then they just lost the skills they'd accumulated, happened to both of them between the ages of two and four, it was really hard. It was a difficult period of our lives. And Rachel and I, as a couple, had both grown up to believe our culture's narrative, which is basically that we have both got unique individual destinies fashioned just for us, and that we were called to change the church and even change the world. There was this song we used to sing as teenagers. And one of the lines was, I'm going to be a history maker in this land. It was like, it's a Christian song, but like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make history. I'm going to do something dramatic and transformative and a bit like, you know, like the, the version of the script, you know, the world's going to know your name. You're living in the Hall of Fame. It was almost like a Christian version of that. You're going to do something truly momentous. She was going to do it by fighting injustice. I was going to do it by teaching theology. And the world was our oyster and we were going to change it. And then our kids were diagnosed with a combination of autism and ADHD and epilepsy and childhood disintegrative disorder and various other horrible things and our lives hit the buffers and we were not able to do almost anything other than get through the day and look after our kids and still in large part that's often true. Our capacity for work shrank dramatically. We couldn't travel. We could, still don't even mostly on the same Sunday. We still don't go to the same church. Like I'm here, Rachel's not today. Like that, that's a function of our situation with our kids as many of you know. Now until the point that that happened to us it was kind of conceivable that we could be fruitful for God on our own as individuals. But now we can't even get through the day without help from our church family, let alone try and change the world. So right now, as I'm speaking to you, there is a woman in our church in Eastbourne called Jen who is running around after my daughter, trying to stop her from disrupting the meeting and tickling her and having fun with her to keep her from being a distraction for everyone else so that my wife can worship God with other people and I can come here and preach and be part of a meeting like this. And in that transition, this is now about eight or nine years ago in our lives, in that transition, it was as if our individualitis, I call it, had been exposed. Right? And we now, I now realize I can't do anything meaningful without being part of a huge community who are all on the same purpose. But I grew up believing that I could because that's the way our culture thinks. Even in our Christian culture, 
you do this, use your gifts and your skills, be released. To go. Now, by the grace of God, we do have different gifts to bring. We're not, we're not all monochrome. We don't all have to do the same thing. But ultimately, the, the city of God gets res- restored and the church of God gets built as lots and lots of people do very ordinary things. And in that context, you work together to achieve something bigger than you. That's, how, that's what this story is about. And in the midst of that season of our lives, when we were confronting the painful reality I've just described, we read this by Carl Truman. I want to read it to you because I think it's, it's punchy, but I think it's true. I think it is skewering a lie that is common in our culture. And he said this, Far too many Christians have senses of destiny that verge on the messianic. The confidence that the Lord has a special plan and purpose just for them shapes the way they act and move. Put bluntly, when I read the Bible, it seems to me that the church is the meaning of human history. But it's the church as a corporate body, not the distinct individuals who make up a membership. My special destiny as a believer is to be part of the church, and it's the church that's the big player in God's wider plan, not me. I think that's what Malchiah, son of Rehab, ruler of the district of Beth Hacharem, must have believed. I think that's the only reason you would spend seven weeks fixing a dung gate. I think he believed some version of my destiny is to be part of God's people and it is Israel who is the big player in God's wider plan. It's Jerusalem that's the big player in God's wider plan, not me. That's what makes a ruler of a district lower himself to fix a dung gate for seven weeks. I think that's why Uziel the goldsmith and Hananiah the perfume maker, and Eliashib the high priest, laid down their special skills and their callings and their preferences and threw themselves into repairing a wall and did nothing else for two months because they knew that the city mattered more than their individual sense of purpose, calling, destiny, or whatever you call it. And the beautiful thing is, they were absolutely right. The future of the city did depend far more on every single one of them doing their little job correctly than it would have done with any of them exercising the wider, more impressive, upscale, high-status ministry they might think they had. Because a wall is only as good as its weakest point. Right? It's the classic chain is only as good as the weakest link. If you have a wall and there's a little hole in it or there's a tumble-down bit in it here, it's of pretty much low value. Because as soon as the enemy finds out that that bit's weak, they all charge through the weak bit and the whole city collapses. And it doesn't matter how impressive that bit is if that bit's not working. Right? That's... That's why this wall is such a powerful metaphor for the union of the people of God functioning together. If one botched repair makes the whole city vulnerable. If you don't believe me, you should ask the French in the 1940s, right? Because this is basically the start of the Second World War, right? The, the Germans are thinking, oh, we're basically, if we're going to win, we're going to need to take out the French very quickly. And the French say, no, but you're not going to be able to do that because we've built the Maginot Line, which is a massive line of reinforcement stretching from Switzerland to the Ardennes Forest in Belgium, where the pate comes from. And we've made it so strong and so robust. It's just the most epically strong wall. You'll never get through it. And a few weeks later, the Germans had appeared in Paris. And everyone's like, how did they do it? And of course, the answer is, well, they just went round the side. <laughs> there's this massive wall. And then they just went round the side because they're like, well, there's no use in part of a wall Part of a wall doesn't do anything. Part of a wall, you just walk around it. And of course, it's kind of, I'm sure this is very unpleasant for a lot of people at the time, and I'm making light of it, but actually that's what happens in any city, in an ancient city. You build most of a wall, but Malachi goes, oh, I just can't be bothered with the dungo. 
You know, Uziel goes, I'm just not going to bother. Uh, Eliashib says, I don't want to build a fish gate. I'm a priest. What do you, who do you think I am? You do that. You don't lower yourself to fix every last section. The whole thing collapses. If Malchiah bungles his dung gate, the whole city falls. There is no Jerusalem. In fact, in the end, there's no Jesus to come into the world and save it through the Jerusalem temple and through dying on the cross for us, in, in a sense. If one person drops the ball at their post, because there's no use in part of a wall. So in a sense, these guys read what was going on in an incredibly powerful way that our society is liable to miss. Now, hopefully you can see the application a mile away, but here it comes anyway. It is exactly the same with the church. Right? It's just the same with the church. Our individualistic culture portrays churches as being built by great individuals, leaders, preachers, musicians, people with unusual gifts, miracle workers, whatever it might be. And by the way, I, I hope you know this. I thank God. I love working with gifted people who are great. I love the leadership here. That's not the issue. I'm, I'm not, that's not a problem. But it is to say that in God's vision of the church, that's not ultimately what's going on. The church of God gets built by thousands of unseen, unknown people doing a myriad of ordinary, mundane, sometimes quite boring things together. That's how the church gets established. Opening up a building, teaching a group of eight-year-olds, praying for unity at home on your own, giving financially, inviting people on an alpha course even when they say no, hosting a group, chasing an exuberant 11-year-old autistic daughter around the auditorium fixing a dungo. There's no use in part of a wall or part of a church. So as we look to rebuild and rejoice, we know that the walls of God's city are only ever going to get built as builders and bankers and parents and daughters and goldsmiths and perfume makers and priests and rulers repair little sections of the wall one at a time. That's how the church gets built. And for some of us, that means joining a serving team. For some of us, it means starting to give regularly. For some of us, it means coming in person for the first time. For some of us, it means praying for people who are able to come because you're not medically able to at this point, but just praying and committing the church to the Lord in prayer as things are going on. My special destiny as a believer is to be part of the church, and it's the church that's the big player in God's wider plan and not me. And that can be very challenging in an individualistic culture like this. But we take our cues, don't we, from the Lord Jesus, who was himself the great high priest and the great ruler, who nevertheless laid aside his status and honour and humbled himself to become unknown and to serve and to clear away dung and to repair God's broken down people so that the city might again become glorious. He came to rebuild so that others could rejoice. Let's imitate him. Let's go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus and we thank you so much for the impact of the church in the world. This church, but your people around the world, billions of us today. Lord, what a privilege to be part of these people. And Lord, I pray that you would help us However mundane, humdrum, difficult the task, help us keep our focus, in a sense, on the specific lane you've called us to run in. The ordinary things, the unknown things. Sometimes they might be well known, but when they're not, and they often aren't, that you would help us do those things with diligence and faithfulness, that the church might be established, that the nations might see the goodness and glory of God reflected through his people. 
and that we all together might be able to not just rebuild, but rejoice. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.